y'all. Welcome back to Eco Chic, the podcast about practical science and sustainability. This is episode 95, and I cannot believe I just said this is episode 95. I'm your friend Laura Diaz. I'm really pumped to have you back. And as per usual, I'm excited about today's episode. Today, we're speaking with Trey and Akita of the Pangea Seed Foundation. The Pangea Seed Foundation is an incredible nonprofit group that facilitates murals all over the world, all about environmental issues and right now primarily about oceans. And maybe if you haven't heard the name Pangea Seed Foundation, you've seen one of their murals. Pangea Seed Foundation has facilitated about 400 murals in 15 countries. Miami, San Diego, Mexico, Indonesia, Canada, Sri Lanka, New Zealand, seriously all over the world. And it is so incredible to be able to have the opportunity to speak with Trey and Akita, the heads of the foundation, because we're really getting into how art is making an impact on the climate conversation and on the conversation more generally about oceans and about environmental issues and how we are interacting with science in the streets. Trey and Akita are both travelers, so we do open the conversation talking a little bit about travel experiences that have really impacted their understanding of different cultures and how people interact with topics like pollution, climate change, that might be questioning what they already believe in. So I think it's really, really cool that they both have a very well-versed travel background. An experience that Trey mentions that really, really struck a chord with me was one during which he was working in environmental documentation. He had this big affinity for sharks, and in 2008, he uncovered the largest underground shark finning trade in Asia. And as soon as he said that, my jaw totally dropped, and I think it gives a nice perspective to the way that environmental issues feel very far away when you're not seeing them up close and personal. It's really heartbreaking to hear about shark finning operations, but when you're someone who just stumbles upon that as part of your work, it really strikes a different chord. And I feel as though Trey and Akita have really honed into the best ways to make people feel more at home and more aware of environmental issues. They take this very bottom-up approach when it comes to community-driven activism. Trey and Akita bring a great, interesting perspective, in my opinion, to this conversation of climate activism because they're really cool people. And I get it. I talk to a lot of cool people on this show, but I feel like Trey and Akita are really cool. They're another level of cool. They talk about how they understand street culture of graffiti and punk rock and skateboarding. And then they compare that with these worldly experiences that they've had understanding different cultures and different communities. And then to take all of that knowledge and perspective and be able to really manifest this huge operation that is the Pangea Seed Foundation, bringing together hundreds of artists and these huge community turnouts to support public art and bringing the sea into the streets. I think it's such a cool perspective. And another thing that I enjoyed so much about this conversation is that Tranikita are both so positive in how people can get involved with climate and with climate activism and not necessarily just climate. If there's something that's in your area that you're particularly concerned about that's not climate related, there are ways that you can contribute that's not necessarily being a scientist or being someone on the picket lines or tying yourself to a tree or whatever it is. There are ways that you can use your creative talents and your time and energy and pour them into an organization like the Pangea Seed Foundation that can go ahead and aim to start the conversation and get people thinking on their own. And while I'm a big believer that there's a space for everyone in this climate conversation, I think it's a little daunting nonetheless to continue to think about how you can contribute. And you can be like, oh, wow, I'm not a scientist. Wow, I'm not an artist. There are things that you can do. And in the case of the Pangea Seed Foundation, what they do is so beautiful and just something that brings the community together. And I think that's an incredibly important point to take home. 
If you enjoyed this episode, I'd like to invite you on Apple Podcasts. Go ahead and leave a rating and a review. It really helps out the show. And you can follow us on social media at EcoChicPodcast on Instagram, and that's where I primarily live. We're also on Facebook if you would like to interact with us on Facebook. If you'd like to email me, my email is also always in the show notes. And you can sign up for our newsletter, TotallyEcoChic.com. There's a little pop-up, and it says sign up for our newsletter. It comes out once a week. It's full of everything EcoChic, so we talk about the latest things on the podcast, anything new from the shop, but also just fun, clickable stories that you can read at your desk. And if you're already sitting in your inbox pretending to look busy at work, you might as well be reading something interesting from your friends over at EcoChic. So totallyecochic.com is where you can sign up for that. We are an independent show, so it's always nice to have your support. It means a lot to us. That's it from me. I don't have any big housekeeping announcements for today. I do want to give a little bit of a preface because I did mention that we're talking about travel in the opening conversation here when we're talking with Trey Nikita. I want to say that I understand that there is privilege surrounding travel and being able to see other communities and other cultures. I don't want anyone to come out of this conversation feeling like I'm preaching to you that you need to go and have these experiences to be a well-rounded person. I just think it's an interesting thing to discuss when we are talking about their story and how the Pangea Seed Foundation came to be. I think it adds a lot to their understanding of environmental issues around the world and how communities interact with these things. Whether or not you have the means to travel as extensively as you'd like to have similar experiences, I would really encourage you to think about the different people and the different communities that are present in your area. I think that it's interesting to think about diversity and travel, but also please remember that you can do this in some capacity already where you're at. Interact with your neighbors, support your local nonprofits, think about public art, and think about how your skill set and your creativity can really contribute to this environmental conversation that we're all having, whether our communities are discussing it openly or not. So with that, please enjoy today's conversation, Pangea Seed Foundation. Also, if you haven't looked up their art, you definitely have to. It's super beautiful. I'm going to link their social media and their website while you're listening to this episode, seawalls.org. Truly incredible work, an incredible organization. Let's get into today's episode with Trey and Akita of the Pangea Seed Foundation. Great. So Trey and Akira, I'm really, really interested in hearing a little bit about your travel experiences, maybe some travel experiences that were really impactful to you. I want to get right into how you got to starting the Pangea Seed Foundation. Yeah. First of all, thank you for having us. We're really excited to be on the podcast today. And yeah, just to jump right into your question, I've been traveling extensively for probably the past couple of decades. And at one point I ended up in Asia and I was doing a lot of documentation of illegal wildlife trade, mainly focused on marine animals. And through that, I was traveling to some pretty far off destinations and meeting different people, experiencing culture, you know, cuisine, religion, and, you know, environment and everything kind of in between. And it's, I get, it's challenging to, to narrow it down to one, because like so many had such a heavy impact on me because I grew up in the States and growing up as a kid, we did travel, but not to the level that I started traveling as, as an adult. For me, seeing just how different cultures live on a day-to-day basis, I think it was so inspiring and educational for me because I think in the States, you know, or probably anywhere that you live, you know, it's easy to live in a bubble and you're conditioned to your environment. But stepping out of that comfort zone, you know, allowing some, some culture shock to seep in is such a, a healthy thing. And places in particular that, you know, shifted my, my lens regarding food that I enjoy or the way that I look at the environment, the way I can live in harmony with it and different things like that. So I would say 
probably the region that, that influenced me the most would have been Asia. So especially Southeast Asia throughout like Malaysia and Indonesia and Thailand and Vietnam and Laos and places like that, I think really were eye-opening for me over the years. How about you, Akira? Yeah, I think I, I personally grew up in Switzerland and I also travel quite a bit, but it wasn't until I was probably about 17 or so when I really started venturing out into some more far-flung places. And I think what travel really does is open up the world to you and let you kind of be this receptacle of new information and mm. really try to kind of shift your lens and kind of look at a new normal. The first Big travels I would, did was going to Mongolia for close to two months and traversing the whole country on different modes of transportation, including camels and horses and mountain bikes and simply trekking. And that really was very impactful because um, most of the people we were seeing while we were in the wilderness were nomadic people living in their yurts. But as soon as we got back to the capital of Ulaanbaatar, we we're in this place that was a modern city, but the people still didn't know how to live in the modern city. So you still saw yurts that they used to use in the desert, carrying everything that they that they own with them in the city with a fence around it. So that kind of contrast between traditional practices and a modern way of life, that really struck me. Yeah, that sounds like a really impactful experience to see firsthand. I'm really curious to know also, just stepping back even a little bit, how Pangea Seed Foundation really got started. So from what I understand, Trey, you started the organization and then Akira came on. And I want to just kind of hear about the logistics, like the early days of what made you want to start this and how did you both get involved? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So as I mentioned, my background for, for several years was environmental documentation. And it kind of got to the point where documenting death and destruction on, on, on a regular basis, it, it just, it, it was just too heavy. Um, you know, and I wanted to do something that really inspired people, like where I, I totally realized the importance of documenting the reality of the issue. But a lot of it is death and destruction, you know, and it, it, it's hard to get people on board with images of, you know, blood and death. So I grew up in a family that was quite creative. Uh, my grandfather was a professional musician and my mother was an artist. Creativity was always a tool that we used to problem solve. So um, I just kind of relied on that being a foreigner in a foreign country. At that time, this would have been circa 2009. It's challenging to, to try to encourage people to change cultural habits. You know, it, I mean, I always refer to it as like, imagine if someone came to the States from like Taiwan and, and, and was encouraging people in the South of the U.S. to you know, give up their guns kind of thing, you know, imagine what kind of reception they would get. I wanted to utilize creativity as a means to get people talking about these issues. So when we first start, well, when I first started the organization, my main focus was shark conservation. Um, I've always had a fascination with sharks. And I think most, most kids do, especially little boys, like it's either dinosaurs or sharks. And like, for me, it's always been sharks and I never grew out of it. So, you know, traveling to far off places to scuba dive and see these animals in the wild, this was back in the first decade of, of the 2000s. I noticed that these places that I was going to that I had read about and learned about, there weren't sharks. And I started asking around and learned about this industrial shark fin trade where up to 100 million are killed each year. And sharks tend to be one of these animals that have really bad PR due to, you know, media sensationalism like Jaws and Shark Week and, and stuff like that. So... In 2008, I uncovered the largest industrial shark finning operation in Asia, 
and seeing an animal that I care about that much, you know, destroyed on this massive industrial level, you know, on like a daily basis in peak season was just, just heartbreaking. And like that for me was a big shift where it was like, okay, you know, I understand a camera is a weapon of, of mass construction, but at the same time, I want to give people hope. You know, I, I think it's important to inspire people to want to take action. So I relied on my upbringing and focused on art. So I've been collecting art, like just, you know, as I could, and, you know, as, as, as a younger, I guess, professional collecting pieces here and there, and I knew what I liked. And so um, I started reaching out to some of the artists that I was collecting and said, hey, I have this idea of potentially creating an art show that's focusing on shark conservation to shine a light on sharks in a positive way. Would you be interested? And the response is fantastic. Like, you know, I think most artists, you know, they have a, a more, I wouldn't say sensitive, but just, I think, open-mindedness or affection toward the environment and nature and animals in general. And the, yeah, the response was fantastic. So I held my first art show in 2009, came up with the concept of Pangea Seed at that time, and it was a success. So like I incorporated music into it. I incorporated film and, and talk story sessions, kind of like a panel discussion with professionals in that specific field. And the response was fantastic. So it was kind of a light bulb moment for me where I realized that this is something that, that can have some traction to it. And I was looking at conservation in general and, and around this time, you know, 2009, 2010, I think the conservation arena was quite conservative or militant. Uh, and both of those avenues didn't really, you know, resonate with me. So like I come from a background of, you know, surfing and skating and punk rock and graffiti and hip hop. And, you know, those were things, that was my language as a kid growing up. That's how I communicated with my friends and my community at that time. I wanted to use art as a tool to communicate. And so that's kind of, that was the birth, I guess, of Pangea Seed. And over the next couple of years, I kept toying with the model and we were invited to do different projects around the world. And it got to the point where it was like, okay, this can stay somewhat of a passion project or go for it and chase my dream. And that's what I did. And we've been doing that nonstop ever since. The organization has turned into different things and morphed in different ways and positive ways. And we don't really have a blueprint for what we do. So there's a lot of trial and error. But for me personally, I can't think of anything else I'd rather be doing when I get out of bed every day. So I guess this, I, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but I hope that answers the question. Yes, absolutely. I think that was actually a really great rundown of your background and how this organization has really come to be what it is today. I feel like I really appreciate your message of wanting to really solve these problems with creativity and encourage people to think about environmental issues in their own way and in their own community. And that example you gave of people from Taiwan just coming to the American South and telling them to give up their guns, I think that's also a really good example to give because it really emphasizes that a lot of these environmental beliefs sometimes, or I mean beliefs in general, but now we're speaking specifically about the environment, a lot of these are cultural beliefs or cultural values that people hold. Exactly. And it's it's kind of hard and it's kind of maybe it's not even that it's necessarily difficult, but it's intimidating and it's inherently like people don't want to change their mind about things they believe are true. I think that this is a massive task that we're all fighting to accomplish and getting people to think more about climate change and environmental concerns and environmental degradation. And you really have to challenge people's beliefs and, and encourage them to think for themselves and make those decisions. So it's definitely a difficult task. And I think that your concept of solving it creatively and getting people to talk about art is a really great way to accomplish that goal. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that's exactly how we feel. And I said I was looking at the, the conservation arena in general around that time. And 
nobody was really using creativity on, on the level that I kind of envisioned. I think, you know, before we started the podcast, we were talking about, you know, your background as well. And I think, I think it's exciting to hear that because I think we're kind of cut from the same cloth to some degree where looking at this field, it tends to be kind of, it revolves around privileged circles and a lot of the discourse takes behind, you know, takes place behind closed doors within, you know, those privileged communities. And these are issues that affect everybody, you know, I mean, everybody's got a stake in this. So everybody needs to be active and engaged. And that's what really brought us to, to push the medium of art as a tool for communication. And I'm sure we'll get into that further once we're talking about different avenues and ways that we use art as a, a tool of communication. Yes, absolutely. So I actually would love to get into how you are using art. I think that it's really, really also important to emphasize that you're doing work all over the world. Like you are really touching a lot of different kinds of communities and you're really maybe striking different chords. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the logistics and the behind the scenes of your work and how you are really accomplishing all of these tasks. Like where do the artists come from? How do you pick the sites? How do you pick the messages? How does this all work? Our main program over the past four or five years has become Seawall's Artists for Oceans. It's our really groundbreaking public art project that brings the oceans into the streets all around the world. And how we do that is through the creation of large-scale murals that address ocean environmental issues, but also flanking them with events such as film screenings, panel discussions, youth workshops, beach cleanups, and different types of like events that are relevant to that local community and that all touch on the topic of protecting our oceans. And so because it's a very much of a like bottom-up approach that we take, we rely on community members who are already invested in this world to approach us saying, I love what you do. I want to bring this to my own home community. And so that's really kind of the stepping stone um, for a new seawall project to take flight is someone approaching us and us kind of like vetting them to make sure they've got the capacity and um, kind of the necessary experience and, you know, kind of those key connections to community stakeholders to start curating this project. And I would say on average, one of our large scale projects that involves 10 to 20 artists, they take about one and a half years, 18 months or so to, to organize. So that's really starting from fundraising within the community to then really curating and producing those side events and just creating a wholesome, holistic project. I think one of the reasons that the project takes so long to organize is because we really pride ourselves in fundraising the vast majority of funds locally. We believe that being able to foster local ownership is the key to making it a success rather than bringing in foreign funding from large corporations or foreign companies um, or foreign individuals. So it's definitely a kind of a local first approach. Yeah, definitely. As Akita was saying, like, I've always compared to what we do like, through the Seawalls Artists for Oceans program, our, our public art program. It's almost like the circus coming to town. So, you know, like our core team, granted behind the scenes, we've been working on this thing from like, you know, for like 18 months, you know, at a time. We're on the ground for usually about three weeks for the actual project when it's in motion. Creating that community buy-in, I think, is, is absolutely critical. And I think while, while we're building the model of what Pangea Seed Foundation is and our programs and what we do, we definitely take stock of our successes and, you know, our, our challenges and our failures. And also, you know, looking at like, I mean, we collaborate with a lot of different people and we're lucky enough to have been invited to some, you know, some fantastic summits and events and different things like that. I try to always be aware of, of how other people operate as well and 
pick things that I think are interesting, that I think work and stay away from things that I feel like didn't. And the approach that we have created with seawalls is quite unique and there is nothing like it at the moment around the world. So we're really proud of what we've built. It's, I think, a perfect example of what grassroots activism can be and what it is. And we're really excited just to see where it's going to go over the years. And so in terms of kind of how one of these projects flow, after we're to the point of inviting artists, we kind of look at some selecting a very diverse group of artists from, you know, different backgrounds, different genders and nationalities and religions. Locales. And locales to really create a, a global picture because we're all in this boat together and we need to come together and stand for this one cause. And so... From there, they're available, their schedules are open, then we send them a topic deck that addresses a bunch of different locally relevant issues that to to kind of inform their research process to create an an artwork. And then once they're on the ground, before they could rush to all, they go on different field trips. So that can be different things like cultural experiences, if we're, for example, in, in a location with a strong like, indigenous connection, environmental field trips, to kind of get them immersed in that environment and create a connection. And only after they've completed those few days of, of kind of letting it all sink in, they start on their murals. That's really interesting to me, because if I am to look at a mural, I feel like mm-hmm. as a passerby, I would never really expect or even suspect that there is this whole program that really goes into that mural being created and that artist really being informed on the issues that they're speaking on. So I'm really glad that you actually shared that because I'm thinking a little bit about like, if I'm an artist that really wants to put together a mural with you, it's interesting to think that I'm going to say, oh, I really care about the ocean. I would love to work on a seawall. And there are a lot Mm -hmm. of different issues that you can tackle there. You can talk about ocean acidification. You can talk about loss of coral reefs. You can talk about plastic pollution. And there are so many issues that touch ocean issues and ways that you can approach seawalls. It's interesting to think that that an artist really needs to have such a holistic understanding of the problem before they can even start to attempt to communicate it. Definitely, definitely. And I mean, this, again, this has been something that's been trial and error. You know, when we first started the Seawalls program back in 2014, we had kind of like a rough concept or approach from that. And then we just fine-tuned it over the years. So like now, I think it's it's a well-oiled machine in terms of like how we educate ourselves in the lead up and then take that information and then share that with the artist. So they're equipped with the best possible approach to create a mural that's going to impact the community. And that's what it boils down to is these are you know, public service announcements to, to some degree, to create a public service announcements. We're bypassing all the political hangups and red tape and attitudes and whatever else that kind of run within these environments and just bypassing all that and, and creating something that's just democratic and free source and bringing it to the people. But doing that We do that in a very informed and educated way. Because at the end of the day, I mean, the artists become the spokesperson for the artwork that they created. So what we do is at the end of each project, the artist will create like an artist statement, a title to to really inform about, you know, what the mural stands for and and what and action steps of what people can do. So we've created a database on the seawalls.org website, catalogs the 400 murals that we've painted around the world since 2014. It's, it's, it's still a work in progress. It's always rolling because we're writing them always at a time. 
but that's kind of like the landing page for people to, to learn about that. But the other thing that we try to do is create plaques that go with each mural in the locations that we paint. And that plaque also has that information where it talks about the artists and where they're from, the topic that they chose, you know, whether that's climate change or ocean acidification, biodiversity loss or whatever, coastal development, you know, with public art, with anything in the public sector, you know, if people want to learn a little more about it, they can inch a little closer and, you know, there's information there if they, if they want it. We're trying to push that medium as well right now with playing with different new technologies that people can learn from the murals via their cell phones. So like a personal interaction with a mural. So, I mean, we're always trying to think of new ideas and ways that we can engage communities. And yeah, I think that's kind of like the concept of the whole, the whole program has been, let's bring the oceans into the streets because these are issues that, as a kid was saying, are, are hyper relevant. Everybody's got a stake in this. But a lot of people are, are disengaged or not informed, and how can we do that? And we feel that public art is a, a fantastic medium for that. And then also beyond what we deliver to the public and essentially the final audience of our work, we also try to essentially nurture our artists to become these spokespeople and just invested in this issue beyond the project. So that includes like helping them become as informed as possible without being preachy and it's really fantastic to see what has happened over the past several years of, super inspiring you know people who had absolutely no interest in the environment who were just phenomenally talented artists that we brought on board now becoming these advocates whether it's for oceans or maybe an environment that is close to their hearts at home but it's really quite inspiring to see that we've been able to kind of touch those artists hearts and then when we do these experiences, we are obviously always taking stock of our, our waste impacts and so on. And so every time we go to and host one of these projects, the artists get like a survival pack. And typically it includes like a plastic free kind of like starter kit to help them empower themselves to, to kind of reduce their plastic footprint, for example, our like lunch deliveries to the artists while they're painting. They're always plastic free. So we have these reusable lunch boxes that we travel around with and so on. And then, you know, to think of just the massive influence that we can have with these artists it's in the tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people through each of these artists following. Um, so we're really kind of tapping into what we can accomplish by almost using these artists' voices as influencers, I suppose, Definitely. that are very popular these days. Yeah. So when like a, a younger artist or, or, or someone who's really into you know street art or just contemporary art, they follow someone that has a half million followers and they see that that person is painting with us and they're advocating for maybe sustainable seafood options or educating about the impacts of coastal development. You know, those are incredible opportunities to educate masses of individuals. So we've just been really utilizing that as a way to get people engaged who might not otherwise have that opportunity. I think it's really important to think about influence and impact that you can have on people's lives. Like you were mentioning, a young artist who may be able to advocate for one particular issue that's really touching to their community. I think that getting people more aware and really allowing environmental concerns and environmental advocacy to kind of seep into people's lives without even realizing it. I think that's such a cool concept because when it's something like art or someone that they follow that maybe really impacts them in some capacity, it's easy to feel like these issues are a lot more personal than just seeing a photo of a dying polar bear. And while that's really heartbreaking, a lot of the time if people have never seen a polar bear, 
that doesn't really feel like it's happening to them. It doesn't feel like climate change is happening or it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like all of these things are happening in their particular lives. So I feel like that's a really important thing to emphasize, just making sure that all of these issues feel tangible and relevant to the communities. And that also kind of makes me think, I'm curious to know if there's any project or any specific piece or even just a theme that may be really popular that you weren't expecting, something that had a much larger impact, like a great success story that you weren't really anticipating. Yeah, I mean, like, like it happens quite regularly at this point. You know, like I said, we've created you know, around 400 murals in like 17 countries with over 300 artists since 2014. So, you know, there's ripple effects there. So we've seen collectives of artists, like, for example, we held one of our largest seawalls activations in Cozumel, Mexico, back in 2015. And we had over like close to 50 artists from around the world painting and locally. And before that, I mean, there, there, there was public art on the island, but it was, it was nothing of the caliber of what we brought to the table. And, you know, there's just, there's legions of these younger graffiti writers or, or, you know, street artists that don't necessarily have an outlet to use their creativity for something positive. So for them to see heroes, you know, that they, that they admire and that they follow, that they grew up with, that they base their practice on, we like to say, you know, let paint for a purpose. That's one of our mottos, create for a purpose or paint for a purpose. And to see their, their heroes, you know, painting for a purpose, like really ignited a movement within this region of Mexico. And we saw like multiple collective start of artists coming together. Like one was called Restore Coral, where they just started creating murals across the River Maya, focusing on, on coral restoration. And I mean, there were just different things like that, that that were springing up, people focusing on sea turtle conservation, and, but using art as this way to communicate it to you know, the, the public and their community. For me, I mean, that, that's one that's really, I think, positive. I try to work with municipalities and governments and things like that when there's that opportunity. And we've been able to help influence policy over the years to you know, create you know, stronger protection status for you know, turtles or whale sharks or different things like that. So yeah, the ripple effect that it's had over the years has just been amazing. Seeing other artists start their own nonprofits and different things like that. One thing that, that for me personally really inspires me on a daily basis is that we tend to be so head down and focused on, you know, the projects and the curation and everything like that, the day-to-day mechanics of it, that sometimes we don't get to focus on the full spectrum. So to see those things come to life for me is like hyper exciting. Yeah, there's definitely these moments that we don't plan for and they just happen. These are things that we hope would happen, but we can't create them ourselves. So definitely what happened in Mexico and that new surge of murals, um, that was really inspiring. And then we've painted in regions where, you know, the people are historically disenfranchised and they're never, they don't feel represented. And so it was recently when we painted in St. Croix, one of the artists um, who's from Jamaica, he painted a depiction of the goddess Yamaya, who's associated with the ocean, um, surrounded by sharks. And this was painted on a low-income housing structure. And so for the residents of that neighborhood to see their culture represented in such a respectful, meaningful way blew their minds away because historically as a U.S. territory, they felt disenfranchised and not really taken care of. And so these types of really heartfelt moments, you can't make those up and they just happen organically. Definitely. Oh, okay. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's really heartfelt. Like you mentioned, it's, it's interesting to think that 
there are so many ways that people can impact their community. Now that you're speaking about creativity and artists finding ways to get these messages really saturated in their communities, like painting on a low-income housing project, things like that, it's really hopeful and heartening for me to hear that these things are going on. So just closing off, I would love to hear a little bit if you have any thoughts on people using these creative methods to get environmental issues in the forefront. I would love to hear just kind of your final philosophies on art and the impact that art can have on environmental conservation. Oh, wow. That's a big one. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Take that however you want. I'm sorry. That was a big question. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, like we look at it from the standpoint, you know, like, like the first murals ever recorded in human history were like, you know, by, by cave people depicting what they saw planes or wherever, you know, they were located. Art like that has been used as a, a communication tool for, for, you know, since the beginning of humanity, used to lead revolutions and spread information. And we're not necessarily reinventing the wheel. We're just taking a medium that has a really powerful impact and just doing something different with it. And for me, you know, like I think for, for, for most people within the conservation arena, you kind of choose your battles, you know, like what you're, you're passionate about. And a lot of us, you know, we're, we're small nonprofits and we rely on donations and you know, behind the scenes, people really don't see the amount of work that goes into it. You know, for us, this is seven days a week. There's no disconnect. You can't necessarily walk away from it. And it's, it's a lot of passion and wearing your heart on your sleeve like that. It can take its toll over time for sure. But that being said, we feel that art can be this incredible tool to engage and, and educate people. So as a kid was saying before, you know, we try to work in communities that don't really have this injected into it and bring something to these areas that tend to be forgotten by either their governments or tourism or whatever, you know, like they're, they're just kind of left behind a lot of the times and, you know, they're disenfranchised and they've just been let down consistently by their leaders and constituents and being able to bring color and positivity to a community, to communities like that, you know, it really ignites people and helps give them purpose and new drive. I feel that art is one of the best tools that we have to better informed, to educate, I think most importantly, inspire people. Because Jacques Rousseau famously famously said, you know, people protect what they love and you love what you understand. So, you know, a lot of these issues about the oceans, like we were saying, you know, acidification and plastic pollution, biodiversity loss, whatever else, these topics are challenging sometimes for people to, to want to be engaged in or wrap their head around. So if you can do that in a creative and engaging way, I think you have an opportunity to start that dialogue, which will then lead to action. Yeah, so I think we definitely don't view art as the end, just definitely the means to an end and really to catalyze people into action. We realize that a painting isn't going to solve all of these problems, but it's going to get communities engaged, get them rallied around a common cause. People who have completely diverging opinions will come together and agree on the fact that this artwork is very beautiful and meaningful. And so that's when these types of conversations that are really, really important and critical right now um, happen and where people come together. So I think that's really what we're hoping to achieve through our work. Definitely. We're a species that, you know, really responds to imagery. And um, I think, I mean, you look at like a lot of the, you know, the modern political and social movements that are happening around the world at the moment. And you look at like, you know, the climate march and the women's march. What are people doing? Most people are holding signs that, that it's artwork, it's creativity, it's it's a way to send a message. Um, like when you you know look at CNN or BBC or Al Jazeera after those you know mega events or whatever, and the main thing that they're focusing are people holding these signs because it's visual, because it communicates. So I think art is is an incredible tool. And as we were mentioning earlier, that's something that we try to do through Pangea Foundation through the Seawalls Artists for Oceans program 
is encourage people to utilize their creativity. And that comes in all different formats. You know, I mean, it's not just pen to paper. It's, it can come in any form, but utilize creativity, your creative voice to help your community and put some positivity into the world. Think outside the box. Totally. Um, and what we've been able to do through our program is to collaborate with other nonprofit organizations, scientists who don't typically dabble in this field of creative storytelling. And so it's been really fantastic to be able to kind of elevate their storylines and their important work through artwork. Because as you said earlier, scientists often are not the best at communicating their research in a way that everyday people understand it and want to know more. And they get so wrapped up in the jargon. So being able to kind of take this very important research that they produce and translate it into something that touches people's hearts, that's definitely something that we love doing. Wow. Okay, great. That was really great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm really thankful to have learned a little bit from you and heard your story. I would say I think it's important for people to be, especially like in, in, a, in, a, in a location like the U.S., you know, we are quite privileged um, compared to, you know, a lot of developing nations and, and locations around the world. So we do have that luxury to, to kind of think about the environment and, you know, our impact on that. And I would imagine a lot of your listeners are, are somewhat tuned in or interested in this topic of conservation. So it starts with you, you know, I mean, like these problems are, you know, massive, but every person can make an impact, you know, no matter how big or how small. Lead by example is incredibly important. And for organizations like ours, we're a small nonprofit and we rely on the generosity of people that believe in, you know, the work that we do. So if you are in a position to support, you know, consider donating or donating your, not, not just funding, but just do donating your time, you know, like look for a, a nonprofit that is doing good work and volunteer your creative talents. For us, I was somewhat of an exception because I, at the time that I started the organization, I kind of had an idea that was quite different from the, the usual suspects that were out there. And we've been successful to build a model that is resonating and growing over time. But it's been interesting to see, for example, like in the past couple of years, saying no to straws and, you know, reusable bottles and things like that have become popular. And the amount of people that have jumped on that bandwagon is just astonishing. And I think that can be confusing for consumers, you know, like what makes this bottle better than this one? Or if all these bottles are being made at once, you know, how is that making any difference from aluminum or plastic or something like that? So I think, again, you know, using, being an individual, using your ingenuity and doing something unique that's going to inspire and help humanity is important. There's one thing that I think we forgot to mention, which is that all of the artists that come and participate in our large-scale seawalk projects, they are volunteering their time and talent. So these are people who are very in demand and who usually get paid very well to paint these large-scale murals um, when, they, when they get commissioned to do so. But... These artists take weeks at a time out of their busy schedules to come and volunteer their time with us. And I think that is an invaluable resource that we are able to tap into. And we're just very grateful for that. Definitely. Awesome. I'm glad that you mentioned that these artists are volunteers because I feel like that really does add a different dimension to the idea that human ingenuity and talent and all of these different skills that you're advocating for really are resources and they are really impactful things that people can give back to their communities. So I'm really glad you mentioned all of that. Thank you. Definitely. And it's also quite amazing to see that many of the artists that have painted with us, they've painted on that with us on several occasions. Clearly, they're, they're gaining something from it, right? So 
the the unique experiences they, they get seeing the new environments that the community we're building of these creatives from all around the world that you know we kind of have like these reunions when we do our projects around the world they come together they're all there for one mission and being able to say that we're not just essentially taking advantage or harnessing their creativity for our own sake, but being able to provide them a very valuable experience and learning um, experience. I think that's, that's something that we're really proud of. Hope you enjoyed our chat with Trey and Akita of the Pangea Seed Foundation. Again, their website will be linked down below, seawalls.org or pangeaseed.foundation. I will also have all of my socials linked down below at EcoChic Podcast. My personal page is down below. Our website's down below, totallyecochic.com. You can always email me, Laura at Laura E. Diaz. Rate, review, and subscribe. And I look forward to talking to y'all next week.